Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. What's up, my friends? My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. I recently sat down with Dr. Susie Honig. She's an aquatic ecosystem ecologist and postdoctoral science education fellow at UC Santa Cruz. Her research focuses on the natural and non-natural links between land and sea. What is happening here on land that is impacting our oceans most? A lot of things that you might not expect, like bird poop. We talk a lot about bird poop. We talk a lot about what ocean acidification actually means. We talked about what we can do right now to be helping our oceans. It was a good conversation for me to have. It was a timely conversation for me to have. I don't know how you have been feeling this last week, but it's been a very intense past few days for me. I've been feeling very ungrounded. We had a ginormous maverick swell the other day. I took one of the more spectacular wipeouts of my life. My neck's still sore. And if you didn't notice, we had an election. Seems like half the country hates each other. And it was a good conversation for me to sit down with a scientist because it seems like so much of the distrust of one another in our, uh, in our world right now is that we don't believe the information that, that is coming out. We don't believe the narratives that are being told. And a lot of times we will take information that supports the narrative that we want to tell. And Susie is a true scientist. She uses the scientific method to gather information and then present that information in as objective a way as possible through a sober lens. And it's funny because a couple times in the conversation, she actually catches me running away with narratives. For, for example, we were talking about seabird poop and she was breaking down her research on how seabirds and their poop have a bad impact on coral reefs. So I then said, okay, well, seabird poop is bad then, right? And she said, well, actually, it's more complicated than that. Seabirds have a positive impact on a lot of ecosystems. So we can't simplify the narrative to just say that seabirds are bad. And I was like, ah, shit, I'm doing it again, I'm doing it again. So she caught me a couple times, and it was good. She checked me. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. If you have questions, comments, or recommendations for future guests, go to my website, kyle.surf, and let me know. Without further ado, welcome Dr. Susie Honig. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. <laughs> good. Let's talk about science. All right, let's do it. How are our oceans doing? <laughs> you know, I think our oceans are, um, they're having a lot of influences, but 
they are able to be resilient. That's my belief. I always trip out on our view of the ocean because it's so unexplored. So few people actually experience the ocean. And I'm always interested in our perceptions of, is the ocean alive? Is the Hmm. ocean dead? Is the ocean full of plastic? Is there an island in the middle of the ocean full of plastic? And it it always trips me out, people's perception of the ocean. Um, And... I think, unfortunately, how many people think that the ocean is dying, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this perception that this big, beautiful force is in some way dead or dying. Um, And I don't know how I feel about that, but but I'm sure as a scientist, a lot of what you are, kind of questions that you're met with are like, what are all the problems with the ocean? But I'm guessing that that's not how you got into this work. It was probably a love for the ocean, right? Yeah. So that's a that's a really great topic and question. And as somebody who has taught marine conservation, it's something we get faced with all the time. The gloom and doom. It's depressing for people. And it's a line that you have to walk. Um, but you're right. What got me interested in ocean science was being a little kid doing junior lifeguards and being with my dad and my brother hopping under waves and looking at how happy it made people and just feeling really this this sense of belonging to something bigger. Um, so that's what got me stoked on the ocean. And I think that that's the story for a lot of people that grow up in a coastal community. Um, that was a privilege that a lot of people don't get to have. Um, and as I got a little older and started learning about some of the the problems that were happening with the ocean, not necessarily because anybody intended for those problems to occur, but just they were a consequence of overfishing or putting pollution into the ocean, it made me worry. Um, And so I think really often the truth lies sort of in the middle. I think that it's all true. I think the ocean can heal and I think it's suffering. I think that there are things that are going really wrong and there are things that can go right. And to keep your sanity as a conservation biologist, you sort of have to keep both of those pieces in mind. Um, it's important not to totally simplify the issues and say everything's going to be okay. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, why would we even be in this field if we didn't partially believe that that was possible? Right. And I think that one of the, the most sad things that I see, not just with ocean scientists, but within a lot of fields, is people get into something because they have a true passion and love for it. But then they get kind of beaten down by the system over years and years. And then they turn into this crotchety old, old, why won't anyone listen to me? You know, and it's, it's like the... Um, the young teacher who goes into the system to try and shape the hearts and minds of children. And then 40 years later, they're the teacher that everyone hates because somehow in their own mind, they have this belief about how the kids just aren't the way that they used to be or something, you know, (laughs) but like, it's cool that you're keeping that healthy balanced view of your work and what it is that you can change. What it is that you can't change, you know, messaging how, to actually get people to care about these issues um, because it's really important. And I think that a lot of people overlook that aspect of the work that they do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, you know, I sort of second that notion of people do tend to get pretty jaded after working on a specific problem for a long period of time. And that's a natural process. Um, For me, I know that when I was in graduate school, every summer 
I would go out and chaperone Aptos High School's Catalina Island Marine Institute field trip. And that was one of those experiences that really kind of shocked me back to earth. Like, oh, yeah, this was this was why this is, you know, kids putting their head underwater and looking at a fish and realizing that that's science. You know, it's not just all writing on a chalkboard and memorizing equations, but that's science um, and that's worth saving. And I think, you know, it's sort of just emotional or personal, but it's really important if you are going to dedicate yourself to a field that you're very passionate about, that you build in those experiences for yourself to remind you why you went there in the first place. Um, to spend time in the ocean if you are dedicating your life to trying to save it and teach others about it, to not forget what got you there. Catalina, too, has <laughs> some of the bluest water in California. I went out to Catalina on a, um, a breath-holding course that I took. It was a three-day course oh, wow. that we did the first day in Newport uh, where you, you learn how to hold your breath for a really long time. And then we went out to Catalina Island, where right off the coast, it's you know, 60, 80 feet straight down with beautiful green kelp forests coming up. And the visibility is like, I can see from here to across the street. It's majestic. It's majestic. <laughs> so why is that? Why, why is it that in Santa Cruz, um, where I go dive quite a bit, a lot of times it's kind of murky? specifically in the summertime it's a lot more murky than it is in the winter time whereas whenever i've been out to the islands of catalina the water's a lot more clear same with down in big sur yeah so it's a great question there's a lot of processes that impact the visibility of the water column um for Big Sur versus Santa Cruz specifically, there's a lot of differences in the geology of the coastline. So um, there's a lot of granite rock down, you know, farther south and, and more mudstone and sandstone up here. There's also different oceanography. So the way that the currents work and the amount of swell can have a, a big influence on sort of how sediment gets dredged up and, and that can affect the clarity of the water. Um and nutrients and other sort of particles or organisms that live in the water can also make water look more or less clear. So um, not that this is Catalina, but, you know, in Hawaii, in the tropics, you go to a coral reef and you might notice that the water is very clear. Um, one of the reasons that water is very clear is it's very low in nutrients. So we call that oligotrophic. Um, it, it doesn't really have many nutrients in the water. And that creates these specially adapted systems where organisms like corals flourish because they have figured out a way to sort of suck nutrients out of the water by having this microalgae that lives within them. So this symbiosis or this relationship between algae and corals, which are animals, um, has allowed them to be in this unique habitat and really flourish, even though there are not that many nutrients there naturally. Now that has changed over time. Right. So the single-celled organism called zooxanthellae. Absolutely, you got it. Kyle. I know. I, you don't. You don't forget a word like zooxanthellae. You, if you really say, don't. If you say it ten times, you can learn zooxanthellae. So zooxanthellae. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, please. <laughs> is the organism that lives inside the coral polyp. And it's what gives coral its color and what allows it to grow and photosynthesize and take in those nutrients. But it needs specific conditions, such as uh, direct access to sunlight, so not too much sediment in the water. Otherwise, it'll be blanketed. 
and not too many nutrients. So this is kind of like what kind of tripped me out a little bit because mm-hmm. when scientists talk about nutrients, a lot of times it's a bad thing hmm. for an ecosystem. But when we, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have some breakfast and have some nutrients, it seems like a really good thing. But tell me, tell me more about nutrients because that's a big misconception out there. Absolutely. Um, so you're right. Nutrients are fundamentally important for the health of any ecosystem. And when I say ecosystem, what I'm talking about is a group of organisms um, that belong to different species, so populations of different species, and their non-living environment. So that includes things like nutrient cycles and um, energy flow. And so you might say a coral reef ecosystem, and what you're referring to are the corals and the fish that live there, the algae, um, but you're also referring to the physical conditions, the light conditions, the nutrient conditions, um, how much salt is in the water, um, what the physical substrate or sort of ground or geology that these organisms are living on. So nutrients are really at the base of all food webs. They fuel and help photosynthesis, which is the first step in any food web. So we have what we call primary producers, the algae, the plants, the grass. Um, They are able to sort of use solar energy and fix carbon dioxide and make sugar. They do that with the help of nutrients. So it would be very... um, very incorrect to say all nutrients are bad in ecosystems. We wouldn't be able to have functioning ecosystems without them. What becomes important is the balance. So um, in many different habitats, we have had environmental conditions that have potentially been relatively stable over a, a long period of time, and that's resulted in evolution and adaptation. Um, to those systems. And so if you have a system that for a long period of time has been pretty low in nutrients, that's favored a a group of organisms that have been able to do pretty well in that specific system. Like coral reefs. Like coral reefs. Um, And again, not all coral reefs have the same conditions. There are deep sea corals and there are some corals that happen to do better under stressful light conditions or different temperature regimes. But In general, in the tropics, you you do have lower nutrients in the water. And so what can happen when you change that physical environment, when you add an excess, let's say, of nutrients from something like human sewage or human fertilizer, um, that creates a different balance in the system. And so there may be other organisms like fleshy macroalgae, the big kind of weedy algae that does really well in those nutrient conditions. And if they do super well, they can start to grow over corals. They can start to change how the ecosystem is functioning. Um, And because corals are what we call the trophic and sort of structural or habitat foundation of those systems, they, they form habitat in addition to just being an organism. When there's changes that affect a really important player like that, it can have sort of these unintended negative consequences on all sorts of organisms in the habitat. Right. It's like the difference between removing a random frog from the Amazon versus removing the Amazon rainforest. Absolutely. And, right. and so when, yes, and the word the word we use a lot of the time to describe either a type of vegetation or a, um, a particular organism that sort of serves as the, the foundation 
of an ecosystem is we call that a foundation species. Um, and so kelp is a foundation species in a kelp forest. Um, redwood trees might be a foundation species in a redwood forest. Um, and so if you if you have a disturbance in the physical conditions that starts to alter the health of a foundation species, you actually start to impact organisms other than just that foundation species. Okay. So what coral are we seeing having a really hard time right now? And what coral are we seeing doing really well under changing conditions? Some of the main ones being uh, warming of the oceans. Right. And um, nutrients mm -hmm. and sediment. Yes. Anything else? What am also I missing? So, so when you're talking about threats to coral yeah. reefs, um, yeah. So, so pollution, you got it right. Nutrient pollution is a big one. Plastic pollution can be a big deal. Climate pollution, carbon dioxide, um, that type of pollution can be really challenging for coral reefs because when we pump carbon dioxide into the ocean, we actually make it more acidic. And so, so ocean acidification can lead to corals, which have calcium carbonate, starting to dissolve. So pollution is one big category that has a lot of different types of consequences for coral reefs. Break down ocean acidification for me because I don't actually... Like I could sell it like, yeah, it's, it's like saying like, yeah, I know what the Federal Reserve is, but I don't <laughs> really know what it does and how it works. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it turns out that when carbon dioxide dissolves into water, um, it forms something called carbonic acid, which then dissociates into hydrogen ions and bicarbonate. Um and so that's a lot of fancy chemistry with specific consequences. Hydrogen ions are sort of what we think of as, as an acid. Um, when you make conditions more acidic, that means you're altering the pH. You're making the oceans have a lower pH. That, that's a higher acidity. Um, now, why does that matter? Well, it turns out pH is actually a, a sort of pretty important variable when it comes to lots of different processes that allow us to live. Um, it's especially important for organisms that are made partially of calcium carbonate. And so acid can dissolve that calcium carbonate. And so that's why you hear about corals being particularly susceptible because they have calcium carbonate skeletons. And so when there is a lot of acid in the water, um, they're unable to make their skeletons super well and keep them. Um, so what you can see is, is coral reefs actually having sort of this dissolving process happen. Um, it's not just corals that have calcium carbonate. There are lots of types of plankton that live in the ocean, phytoplankton, um, that also are made of calcium carbonate, and they do much worse um, under acidic conditions. But I would encourage um, everyone that's thinking about pH to, to look a little further into it because pH is also very important for our own bodies. They're sort of these what we call homeostasis, these, these ranges of um, temperature and pH and salt balance that 
need to be in a particular range for us to be functioning very well. And so when you when you change pH just a little bit, you're actually changing um, conditions very dramatically for how our metabolism could work, let's say, and, and other life-changing processes. And so the, the chemistry... Um, the chemistry can get pretty complicated, but the the important part of this is that as you add carbon dioxide into water, this is one of the consequences of um, of that reaction on ocean organisms. I love the the human body analogy because I I think that um, for all of us health nuts out there, you hear that like oh you don't want to have too acidic of a diet, right? Or you right. want to keep your pH in good balance but it's the same with the ocean you want to keep the ocean in balance just like a healthy ecosystem the thing that trips me out the most about both the human body and i want to relate this back to the oceans is how many how much how unintentional a lot of it is that throws off an ecosystem whether it be your body or an ocean a lot of times we don't think about what we're doing to our body. It's not this this malign intent to destroy our own bodies. And I think that from a lot of the stories that I've been doing recently, mm-hmm. it's tripped me out the amount of horrible stuff that happens to the ocean that is just like, it's like overseen, right? Like the, the right. story that I recently did where I went out to Hawaii and a story on the impact that wild pig are having on coral reefs through digging up sediment in the watersheds. And then when the storms come, there's no soil retention. So that sediment flows downstream and it blankets the coral is completely unintentional. It's not like the pigs are like, we're going, we are the evil pigs and we're going to destroy the coral, right? It's this unintended consequence of something happening up the stream and then is impacting a separate ecosystem. And it's been interesting for me after releasing this video to see people's reactions to it Mm -hmm. because um, we we show hunters in a very positive light in in the film Mm -hmm. because keeping pig populations down on the big island in a place where they're an invasive species and you have to remove 70% of them every single year for them to maintain steady numbers. we kind of show that, look, hunters and people building fences around these watersheds are doing a really good, really important service to the oceans. But a lot of environmentalists don't necessarily... It's like a lot of people really enjoy the film, but it's interesting how a lot of times we have this narrative of the ocean where we want it to be the evil corporation that's destroying the ocean and we want it to be this single source that's destroying the ocean and that's not to absolve corporations of responsibility. And I understand that there is a lot that they do to harm the oceans. But more scientists that I talk to explain to me that it's rarely one source that is destroying an ecosystem. It, it Just like it's rarely one source that is destroying your body. Like, sure, you could be addicted to meth, and that's probably the big thing that's making your teeth fall out. But more than likely, it's like the donut they had in the morning. And then, you know the donut that you had in the afternoon and then 
you know, you, some ice cream that you had at night and didn't really exercise a ton through the day, right? Like it's, it's a combination of all of these different things. It's absolutely a combination. So you just hit on sort of my, my dream research lab, which would be to run a lab where we looked at unintended consequences. And I've, I've joked about this to my colleagues over and over because it's, it's totally true. It's, when you simplify the narrative to be just about bad and good, you're not drawing the whole picture. It's a it's an easier way to do it because it allows certain people to feel like they're right and other people are wrong. But, you know, my belief is that the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle. Um, that's not as fun. That <laughs> may not be as sexy in a paper you're writing, but but it's important because Donald Trump is destroying <laughs> the coral reefs that's the narrative right <laughs> like but it's the, it's the storytelling that we like we enjoy whether it's politics or a story about the world like we enjoy that simple narrative where we're able to get on a team and then throw some grenades over against the other team and say it's right. your your fault it's your fault but it's so much more fascinating when you actually look at it as an ecosystem, because that's usually what's true. And you hit, hit it on the head by saying that you tend to fall somewhere in the middle. Right. So I want to learn more about the, the research that you're doing. What is it that you're super excited about right now? Absolutely. So that's actually a really great segue, because when I think about um, my, my research questions, they are all informed by sort of this bigger general question, which is how are we connected? How are humans connected to our neighboring coastal ecosystems, how are islands connected to the marine ecosystems right next door. Um, I've looked at how seabird poop is influencing coral reefs. So seabirds are birds that that um, are exclusively marine. So they feed only from the ocean. They fly all over the world, feeding on fish and krill and squid. And then they can go thousands of miles back to these small oceanic islands and they breed and they poop. And their poop is incredibly rich in nitrogen and phosphorus. There have been wars for seabird poop, which we call guano, um, because it's so rich in nutrients that it can be an incredible fertilizer. Um, and there have been acts that the United States government has made where we could take over islands. The Guano Islands Act allowed us to sort of acquire territories because there was guano there. Um, so guano on islands has been socially, um, culturally, and politically important for a long time. But it's been an important source of nutrients for, for humans for a long time. Um, and anytime you have a really rich source of nutrients, you can use it to help garden and make food. Um, fertilizer can be used to make bombs. So it has been important in, um, in warfare. And um, we have mined guano on many, many places around the world. And so it's been a really important resource um, for humans. But, but when you think about that, you have this huge source of nutrients on small islands that are next to some of the most what we call oligotrophic or low nutrient waters in the world. When we're talking about birds that breed on tropical islands in the middle of a tropical ocean, they are depositing these marine derived nutrients in the form of guano 
in huge dense concentrations. And many of these seabirds and coral reefs have coexisted for millions of years. So this isn't a new relationship. This is something that's been happening for a very long time. And because we know that humans use these nutrients, the the logical next question is, well, what the heck? <laughs> What's happening on coral reefs? Because these these nutrients don't just stay on the island. There's storms, there's rain, there there must be transfer of these into the water. And so what does that mean? We there's there's this paradigm on coral reefs that says, you know, nutrients from humans are bad. <laughs> so sewage can be really harmful because of that same relationship we talked about at the beginning. You can have this disruption in the balance and, you know, weedy algal species can grow over corals, particularly if if there's not enough fish eating that algae or something like that. Um, so my PhD dissertation was to try to start disentangling that question, to really ask, first of all, is are those nutrients getting in the water on coral reefs? Can we see them? Um, and the next question then is, well, what does that mean? And that's a complicated question because it depends on, on sort of geographically where you're talking about. But I will say for the first question, um, are these nutrients getting in the water? I went out with a research assistant to uh, Oahu, stayed on a little island called Coconut Island in Kaneohe Bay um, for six weeks and started to sample the coral reef communities that were right next door to these other small islands around Oahu that had different numbers of birds. And so it was a nice natural experiment because some of the islands had very few seabirds that were breeding and some had very many. And so the question was, do you see more nutrients in the water or in the algae next to islands with more birds? And so that's the question we asked. We collected algae, and I'm sure you have a lot of uh, free diving and ocean experience. I know you're a big wave surfer. It can be a little intimidating when you're offshore and free diving and dipping down and collecting algae in an area that is pretty close to a lot of tiger sharks. What was that like? <laughs> it was great. It was nerve wracking. It was scary. Um, and it was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was to, to be getting paid to ask questions about the world um, and through free diving is a, is a pretty neat experience. Um, yeah. What, what was uh, one of the standout moments on that trip for you? Oh my goodness. Standout moment was probably the first day when um, my research assistant and I naively thought, oh, we can do this. Let's take the, the little 17 foot whaler out. Um, and we got caught in a set that started building and as we went farther and farther out, because we didn't want to get our boat facing sideways to the wave, the waves started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So um, my research assistant who was driving the boat eventually navigated out uh, of the swell, but it put us on the shallow part of the reef and we spent the next two hours pushing our boat, <laughs> walking on the ground and pushing our boat because we didn't want to damage the corals that we were there to save. <laughs> so um, just interacting with the ocean, it's it's never a dull moment. And you can go out there as a scientist and think you know everything about everything and, and it will reaffirm your respect for the ocean very quickly yeah uh it's like in um in ufc they say everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face <laughs> like <laughs> in the ocean everyone has a plan until you get caught inside by a big set yeah i mean universally and and i think that's what's great about marine biology it, it can keep you humble in that way right and it's never dull it's never dull it's a big ocean 
It really is. I heard something recently that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the deep ocean. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an unbelievably unexplored world. Um, we know a lot, but there's so much more to know. Um, and I think it's imp- it's important now more than ever because we are also losing the chance to learn more um, as we start to change the processes that are occurring in the ocean, as we start to lose species that we didn't even know existed. Um, so, so, so I, w- I want to get back to birds because yeah. this is super fascinating. Um, w- what is it that, that we can do about birds? Because I think that a lot of people are like, oh, well, are, are you being hyperbolic by saying that bird poop has a big deal on our oceans, but it does. And the more people I talk to about it say that, no, it, it, a lot of these animal poop, unintended consequences like that have this massive effect. So what is it that we can actually do about it? Yeah. So when it comes to seabirds, what I, what I didn't tell you was that seabirds and coral reefs are two of the most threatened marine communities on the planet. Seabirds and coral reefs. And coral reefs. So we're not just talking about coral reefs are the, you know, let's let's save the coral reefs, but the birds aren't good. It's that that simple narrative. Unfortunately, it doesn't fit. Because... God, I love the simple <laughs> narratives. Let's just take out the seabirds and save the coral reefs. Damn it. That one didn't work. <laughs> Over a third of all seabird species are, um, or nearly a third of all seabird species are at risk of extinction right now. They're very vulnerable. Um, and as I said, they have, you know, these guano deposits While my question was about what does that do for coral reefs, there's a whole separate question, which is what does that do for the islands in which seabirds, you know, breed on? And it turns out it's super important. It is the base fertilizer for communities of plants and animals that live on these islands. There's lots and lots of work showing that in the Aleutian Islands and on the Great Barrier Reef and in New Zealand and all of these places, bird guano is a super important part of the ecosystem. Um, that's not the only important impact they have. They also disperse seeds in their feathers accidentally. We call them ecosystem engineers because some of them burrow underground and they actually change the physical structure of the habitat. So seabirds are very important, as are coral reefs. Um, just intrinsically, they're you know for the processes in their own ecosystems, but also for us, they do things that we take advantage of as humans. Um, so, I would really reframe that question from "Are seabirds good or bad for coral reefs?" to "Seabirds and coral reefs have coexisted for millions of years, and then we've started to change things." Um, and we have some research that shows to to follow up on the Oahu work we were able to track that bird guano was indeed getting into the water. We saw higher amounts of phosphorus in the water. We saw um, a higher amount of a special type of nitrogen in the algae that is an indicator of bird guano. Um, And so it looks like that, you know, there is an effect. Um, We're still working on exactly what that means. But the next question is, okay, well, if nutrients can be harmful for coral reefs, and we know that birds are putting nutrients into coral reefs, then what else are we doing that needs to change? Are we fishing out fish communities that feed on algae? If we started to you know, put a marine protected area in place, perhaps there would be a better chance that that fish community would be able to graze on the algae and really sort of 
mitigate and balance that ecosystem? Mm. Are we adding more sewage? Are we adding more fertilizer? So those are the questions I'm really interested in, not necessarily how to change what was natural, but how to accommodate two ecosystems that are interacting, even if we didn't admit it or we didn't know it, but they are and they have been. And how can we help make interventions through management and conservation that allow that to sort of have a synergy where both ecosystems are doing as well as they can, given the circumstances. You can have a donut every once in a while if you have a healthy immune system. So what we can do to have ecosystems have as healthy and resilient immune systems as possible will allow them to to be able to accommodate more algae because the fish eat the algae off the coral but if we fish all the fish out then it's a bigger issue when that we have high rates of poop in the water Absolutely. it also seems like like there are certain areas of the world where it's a bigger issue like when i was on the big island a, a second story that um I'm actually editing, um, doing voiceover on later today, was on the nutrients from cesspools on the Big Island specifically mm. um, because Hawaii is uh, still on the cesspool system, meaning that if, if you have a house in Hawaii, you can just dig a hole in the ground and all of your poop goes into it. You don't right. need to have be hooked up to a septic system. Now, if you're up in the, the mountains somewhere, that's not a very big deal because poop dissolves and... Um, but on the big island it's a really big issue because it's porous lava rock that everyone is sitting on right so the poop moves freely under everyone and specifically if you have a beach house with a cesspool that's right at the high tide line there's really no process for that poop to be able to break down before it enters the ocean mm-hmm. same with i mean it's not necessarily a problem that pig are on an island it's when they're in these sensitive areas like watersheds that they displace all the sediment. Um, so I want to know from you, like, what are the areas that you find to be like most sensitive, and, um, you know, where can we hit it hit it hard to make the biggest change? Absolutely, um, that's a tough question. I think it's an important one. I there are different scales in which you can address problems. I would say you know, one of the of the big ones is from the top down. That's management, that's legislation, right? For for problems like global climate change, um, a lot of individuals have to cooperate to start making really, really big sort of global changes in policy. However, I think um, often small local changes that might not seem to change the whole problem at once are really important to keep in mind and do both at the same time. Those are things like, you know, as a Santa Cruz community member, um, being really careful about if you let your animal go poop in the intertidal at Pleasure Point, it turns out actually those nutrients impact the seagrass community there. That means not necessarily washing your car with a ton of soap right next to the drain that's going to run right into the ocean because soap has nutrients in it as well. That means being careful about, um, you know, trying to slow down the flow of water and runoff into our coastal communities, uh, purchasing products that are recyclable and not investing in things like styrofoam um, and single-use plastics as much. And I'm not saying that 
just by doing that, we will solve the problems. I think it's it's a little too simplistic because, as we said before, there's a lot of different problems that are interacting to cause large influences on ecosystems. But I think you have to do all of it. I, I don't think it, you know, I really, I resist this one or the other temptation a lot. It's seabirds and coral reefs. It's top down and bottom up. It's It's really, unfortunately, at the end of the day, everything <laughs> that's important. Um, or fortunately, though. I mean, I think that that's like the great plight of the evolution of mankind is our ability to be able to see an, an ecosystem holistically, see ourselves holistically and not have these simple narratives that we throw out there and unfortunately then don't end up at the correct solution, right? It's not, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated, but it's actually just a lot more cool yeah. when you understand it all like well whoa like coral reefs and fish and seagrass and kelp forest and like how it's all connected Absolutely. is super rad when you when you dig into it I think so I, that's what's made me want to study it for my whole life right. <laughs> I think you're right and and I think you know, as you said, it's not unfortunately, it's fortunately, because if we all are contributing to part of the problem, therefore, you know, there's an opportunity that we all can change and start to be part of the solution. 100%. And there are um, leveraged impacts that we can make in certain areas, right? Like, Absolutely. Right, this is something that we're doing, like, just don't use a plastic bag. That's a big one. Right. Um, tell me, tell me a few of the other. Like, what are the big ones that you can do right now that have that actually do have an impact? Yeah, I mean, uh, plastics is a great one that comes to mind. It's something we use all the time. I think being really careful about things like microbeads. That's sort of a a newer issue. Just these nanoplastics that are in all of our commercial products and our toothpaste and our deodorant. Um, voting, you know, to ban things like that. Um, Really talking to your friends about it, making sustainable seafood choices. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that all seafood is bad, but it might mean that there's a choice that's a little bit better if you're looking at the whole ecosystem. You know, if you're looking at the way a destructive fishing technique impacts not just one species, but the habitat, the ecosystem, all of the species, the biodiversity of the system. And so trying to learn a little bit more about that, taking a look at Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program and thinking about um, what you eat, <laughs> what you buy, how you vote. I think those are maybe the most kind of first logical steps we can all think of. But as you said, I also think it's it's really important not to focus on villainizing everybody else, because when we do that, um, it can be easy to just think the problem is so bad, I'll never be able to change right. it. And I think that's the biggest danger, to be honest, is getting so jaded that that we just don't even try anymore it's it's the cynicism and it's the it's it's this um untrue narrative that humans are bad right right like i i get this on the youtube comments all the time like it's like humans are the invasive species humans are horrible it's like yeah we have a big impact but humans are also pretty cool like we're doing some pretty cool stuff too and and to think of ourselves like that and to think of the ocean as this living breathing ecosystem that we need to keep track of and understand how we're impacting it but to not villainize ourselves as well we're all part of the same system yeah. that's the point right we're all part of it right and and even and i think that a lot of times unfortunately like groups like hunters and fishermen feel alienated from these conversations even though they're they're the ones interacting with the ecosystems 
most of all. Right. Right. It's, it's that same like villainizing another group and throwing another great like throwing a grenade at them, which doesn't it doesn't help. No. And, you know, I think there's also um, there's a lot of groups that aren't doing that. And so I just I want to highlight that there are a lot of groups of scientists, of conservation biologists, of resource managers and resource users that are working together. So if you think about, you know, the way the Marine Life Protection Act went into place, that's a network of marine protected areas along the coast of California. And that process involved so much science and and many, many stakeholders that were asked about their opinions and citizens and fishermen and um politicians. And I think that's what we can hope for is really when we start to all sit at the same table and realize that all of our priorities are valid and important and and people are doing things for a reason. Um, But there are problems. It's all true. And so how do you use logic at that point to figure out which problems are the worst problems? And is there room for win-wins? Can we try to make changes that don't completely um, you know, overwhelm and destroy Alienate, economies. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that may maybe they're really important and they need to be done for sustainability. The thing is, um, with water, <laughs> stuff can move in and move out pretty easily. So even if you say you have a marine protected area, but you put it right next to a place where we're dumping pollution in, we're going to have an impact. So I think really thinking about these systems not as you know, a marine system in isolation from everything else, but more holistically, is an important first step to to managing, um, you know, and creating targeted management that makes a lot of sense and has the best chance at actually providing resilience through time. Right. So how did you get into this? What was the decision that made you really take the plunge to want to become a scientist? (laughs) Um, You know, I always loved math and science. And ironically, I thought it's just it's so objective. There's always a right answer. And that makes me feel good. And I liked the ocean um, totally separately and thought that was just kind of who I was. Um, And then I started to learn about conservation after going to Catalina Island in high school as a senior. And I I learned about overfishing. I went down to UC Santa Barbara as a freshman and had an ocean view from my dorm and um, started to take environmental studies classes and, and really just realized that to do good conservation you have to understand the system. You have to do good science. They they go hand in hand. You can't really try to help um, restore a system without understanding the factors that make it what it is. And so for me, I, I felt that by trying to understand these systems, by looking at the processes that are both natural and anthropogenic or caused by people that impact them, I could help kind of you know, add to that repository of information that's really important to help sustain these systems. Um, but at the end of the day, it's fun. I'm I'm stoked on science. I love teaching. I love watching that kid put their head underwater at Catalina Island and see a huge fish go by and it just, it blows their mind. Um, I think biology is magic. And I think that the more biology you learn, the more you realize that. Um, it's not something that takes away from the miracle of life, it just adds to it for me. And so I think I wanted to surround myself with nature and I wanted to continue to learn for my entire life. And that's been a way I can do it. Where have you um, seen kids who you've interacted with 
get it <laughs> in the most effective way. Yeah. Because it seems like most people who I talk to who are um, champions of the ocean do it because they fell in love with it or they had a mentor who taught them about it at an early age um, and they got psyched and they got the bug. Um, so d- tell me about that because you, you work with kids Yes. Consistently, right? And you're you're getting them psyched on the ocean. Yeah. So I, I'm actually a teaching postdoc now at UC Santa Cruz, um, working for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's active learning initiative. So I teach college students. I help design curriculum for intro biology, um, which notoriously has a lot of students dropping out at that point. There's a lot of people that leave science um, after these big lecture intro classes where you come into class and you have 300 people in a class and you listen to a lecture and you you go home and you study it. And so how old are these kids at that time? Uh, these are like 19, probably 19, 20. Yeah. yeah. Um, near the, near the beginning of college. Yeah. And so my job is to try to help make the curriculum we're teaching better. Um, and what I mean by better is more inclusive. So if a student doesn't just learn through lectures, maybe they learn through drawing (laughs) that we add in a piece of the curriculum that helps for them. Um, so I, I think kids get it. And people and adults and all of us get it when it's important to us and we feel ownership over a process. And that can be with any type of learning. If you are told how to drive somewhere, if someone drives you to the store and you're kind of paying attention, but you're kind of not, you'll get there and you'll think you know how to get to the store and you might not think about it that much. But if somebody makes you drive there, you're going to remember it. Um, And so that's sort of the philosophy with active learning is design activities where students get to actually do science. Science is a process. It's not just a a collection of facts. Um, When you're teaching someone a process, you need to let them practice it. You don't learn math by just looking at a PowerPoint of equations. You practice it. Um, And you don't learn science without asking questions about the world and then going and testing out your questions and seeing what happens. And that turns out to be really fun, usually. And in my experience, little kids are better than that than anyone. Right. They have the curiosity. Um, that's a natural thing for people to ask questions about the world. So I think just, you know, the way to help people get it is to not tell them what to think, but help them get stoked on whatever it is that makes them stoked and, and you know, expose students to what it really means to do science in the field you know, even if you have a fourth grader, you can go outside on the lawn and say, we're going to count bugs. And here's this measuring tape. And what do you think that, you know, how many bugs do you think are going to be near this mud pile versus over by the pond? Well, why do you think that? Okay, what would the graph look like? I don't know all the answers. Scientists aren't magical, right? We're just asking more questions. Right. So what is it that you're actually doing um, with some of these kids? Um, so we've, we've done a lot of different really fun activities. We, I, I helped co-teach a development and physiology course where we um, had students act out the action potential, which is how our nervous systems fire. Basically, we put signs on everybody from you know calcium ions to sodium ions to these um, <laughs> voltage-gated channels in our, in our neurons. And we went outside in the quad at UC Santa Cruz and actually acted out how this process works. It's a little silly when you do that. It feels a little bit you know cheesy. 
But the students said, you know, the test came around and they could remember better than ever how that process worked. Yeah. Um, so we act stuff out. We do case studies. Um, we have people poster their ideas on posters. They stand up. They move around. They talk to each other. <laughs> we make our lectures more interactive. And I would never say that lecture is always bad. Again, um, that dreaded simplification. I just it's not the truth. You, you have to lecture. Um, but you can make your lectures, you know, more interactive where you let students talk about something for 30 seconds and then regroup. Um, yeah. All of those little changes, I think, help make the process not just about the teacher, <laughs> but really about the learners. Yeah. And that's kind of the point. I'm so inspired uh, when I talk to a lot of educators now. It seems like there is... A, a shift that's happening, maybe not within all schools, but within a lot of learning, people are kind of taking a step back and asking questions about how we learn best. Yes. Right. Because that, because it's like a lot of people are like, oh, well, they just can't sit still. It's like, no, yeah, kids can't sit still. Let's figure right. out a way, <laughs> way so that they can learn while they're not sitting still. Yeah. I love that. I, I mean, if you get a kid interested in something, they'll learn anything about it. Absolutely. Like it doesn't. And I mean, I can speak personally for this. Like I was not a math kid or mm -hmm. a science kid growing up. But the second I got interested in a subject, you know, be it from wanting to make a video about a coal power plant down in Chile or materials economy from Sri Lanka to Santa Cruz, like I'll learn about it because I want to go to these places and I want to I want to dig deep and that's one of the one of the best things about what I get to do is actually get in the field and meet the people mm -hmm. and have those memories be lodged deep into my <laughs> long-term memory for forever because the shark actually swam up to me or you know had to climb over the fence to go out there and check it out. Yeah, and that that's that's the point where you're learning, right? Where those facts are literally being lodged into your long-term memory because they affected you in some way. That's when we remember things. Um, and I think that there, you know, you don't have to be a teacher to take advantage of that. You don't have to be a biologist. This applies to, to whatever field anyone is interested in, whatever you want to learn. If it's getting better at surfing, you do it, <laughs> you practice it, right? And so um, I think that that, definitely applies to teaching and I think the fact that maybe that wasn't happening all the time in biology that that's just silly right like if you can make biology boring you deserve a trophy that's what my dad always said like you like biology is literally the study of life yeah it's what unites every living organism so if that's boring there's a problem yeah. <laughs> and it I I think that you know helping just let people practice stuff and uh, be a little bit, you know, use their own literacy to drive their learning rather than just only doing it one way. It's not just one or the other. We have to do it all the ways. Um, what are some careers that you've seen um, people get into who are interested in the ocean um, and, and ways that they could actually make money at it long term? Right. That's a great question. Um, not just academia, right? There's, you know, in my field, I got a PhD in biology and academia was the track I was interested in. But um, I think especially today, there are so many careers that are focused on environmental management, um, environmental consulting, trying to make sure that when we do, you know, 
do things to the land or develop that we're doing them safely. And we need people to check that out, to look at before and after and, and be consultants of water quality. Um, government agencies are hiring non-governmental organizations, places like island conservation or, you know, um, resource management agencies. There, there's so much need. If you're interested in the ocean, you don't need to just be a marine biologist to be able to work with the ocean. Um, so I, I think whether you're interested in getting involved in policy and the government, um, getting involved in conservation organizations, getting involved with private companies that, like I said, need consultants, or whether you like to teach, but maybe you don't want to do it at the college level. You want to be getting those second graders out and counting bucks. That, that's all important. Um, and it all kind of feeds into the same thing. And I think that there is a wide diversity of careers around ocean health. Um, and so it it's it's a really exciting time to be yeah. a marine biologist. It's yeah. scary because there's a lot of changes that are happening. But again, that means that there's a lot that, that we can do. Yeah, yeah. And there will always be changes. The ocean will never be saved. Right. It's always being saved. It's always changing and evolving and adapting. And there will always be dark spots and there will always be bright spots. But one of the thing that's one of the things that's been exciting for me to see is what you touched on in the private sector, a lot of companies um, stepping up to corporate responsibility right. and having entire teams on board figuring out how their company can have the the greatest possible benefit to you know, name it, oceans, trails, mountains, wherever it is that that company identifies, um, and actually having people doing good work. Yeah. And that's that's super cool to me because we definitely need that as the world is shifting more in towards the corporate pendulum of mm -hmm. just that corporations just have more power than they used to. Mm -hmm. You know, so a, a company like... I mean, I'll shameless plug to my sponsor, Patagonia, <laughs> can do a lot of good work because they're, you know, billion dollar company and giving a lot of that money away to people who who are interested in various aspects of saving the ocean. Right. I love that. Yeah. There's there's a lot of places to get involved and there's a lot of opportunities for change. What do you think are the first steps? I'll let you go soon. <laughs> um. The first steps, I think... Someone's listening in their car. They're going to get out of their car. Yeah. I mean, just start researching what you are drawn to. What makes your eyes light up about the ocean? What are you curious about? I think that trusting our own intuitions um, is something that maybe we don't do enough. And I think that if you are feeling that stoke for doing something ocean-related, get online. Google, you know, a specific type of sea hair that you saw the other day at Pleasure Point and you want to learn more about. See if there's a local organization or beach cleanup or, um, you know, some other folks that feel the same way. And then just start talking to people. Read. Read about the system. Look at the look at the scientific literature. Look at the popular literature. Um, maybe audit a class. But just don't don't get pigeonholed into thinking that that the only way anyone can make a change is by you know, one specific thing. I think that's maybe my, my message in general. We're all connected. It's complicated. <laughs> and that can be a little depressing if it's overwhelming. But that also means that we all have important impacts, no matter what it is we're doing and no matter what it is we choose to do with our one great life. <laughs> 
Yes, we made it through another one. I'm so enjoying doing these podcasts. I feel like an empty cup of water that is slowly being filled with information from intelligent people who I sit down with. Um, Coming up next, we have professional big wave surfer Sean Dollar. Sean held the Guinness World Record for paddling into a 61-foot wave. uh, And... And then last year, he, he broke his neck and suffered a traumatic brain injury. So we talk about everything from big wave surfing to coming back from this injury. And it is a, um, it, it's not always an easy conversation to listen to, but it is an important one. Uh, so I hope that you get a lot out of it. Until next time, my friends, um, get out there. Give high fives and hugs. We need it now more than ever in the world. And get in the water. See ya.